Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. With me today in our studios, Dr. Sonia DeRose, my wife and family practice uh, trained specialist. Sonia, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here with you. Sonia, today we're uh, going to be tackling uh, some more questions that have been coming in through our online portal. And just for the record, for those of you that aren't engaging with our content online, we have literally thousands of people a month that are engaging with our content. Some of it is uh, things that we first produced for radio, for uh, American Indian and Alaska Native Living Radio. We do sometimes release bonus video content. And we've been putting out a lot of short-form videos. The best way to connect with those is simply on YouTube at Compass Health Consulting. We also have another channel at Timeless Healing Insights that's also putting out a lot of uh, content. So a lot of you are engaging with us via the Internet, asking us questions that are coming through those uh, various sources. There's a number of ways to reach us. You hear at the announcements. One of the ways that you can reach us, probably most of our questions right now, Sonia, I would say are coming through timelesshealinginsights.org. Is that your impression? Yes, I believe so. So, Sonia, we've got one of those questions that have come through. In fact, we have a number of questions that we're going to be tackling in today's show. These are your questions. So if you have questions and you want to reach out to us, uh, probably the single best place is to go to TimelessHealingInsights.org. Just go to Contact Us and then send your question through. But uh, if you're listening real-time on radio or if you're listening to a podcast at the breaks, there's also other ways to contact as well. But we're just going to try to keep it simple and just give you one to remember. Sonia, what's the first question that we've got as far as today's show? This person says... Good evening. I have a question. Can I get off taking statin for cholesterol? Is there a natural medicine for that? I will wait for your reply. Thank you. God's blessings. Okay, so basically uh, I did answer this question online. Sometimes we will make a response that uh, actually goes to the person individually. Other times we'll just group them. And we will then include them in a show like this. So I wrote this, Sonia. I started with these words. It's a complex question. And what I explained to the questioner is the reason why, this is a quote what I sent the individual, the reason why is it makes a difference in my mind whether we're talking about what we call primary or secondary prevention. Primary prevention refers to preventing a disease or condition that has yet to occur Secondary prevention relates to preventing the ravages of a disease that is already present. And let's just stop and back up and just talk a little bit about primary and secondary prevention. So I kind of gave it in just some very brief uh, definitions. 
Do you think that's accurate for folks who are listening? Primary prevention, would you describe it differently? No, that sounds good to me. You know, you and I as health professionals, I guess just to, to make the point, if, if you're tuning in, we talk about primary prevention. Someone has never had a heart attack, okay? Uh, they've never had a stroke. They're not put on a statin drug for one of those diseases. So they're being given this drug we call for primary prevention to prevent a disease from ever occurring. Secondary prevention would be after the person has had a disease. They had a stroke. They had a heart attack. The doctor put them on a statin drug because they don't want them to have another heart attack or stroke, for example. So that's illustrating this difference between primary and secondary prevention. So the reason why that's significant is the purpose of a show like this is not to um, basically uh, play doctor. We're both licensed medical practitioners, but when I say play doctor, we're not acting like we're diagnosing or treating anyone on air. And the reason for that is simply this. We don't have a, a doctor-patient relationship with someone who answers, you know, who sends us a question online. Sonia, why is that so important? This is a very important thing to follow because if there is no doctor-patient relationship, for one thing, then there is no way to document the things that have been communicated. There's no chart to uh, have a record of what has been shared. The person may not even live in an area where the doctor has a license, and then the doctor could be accused of practicing medicine without a license. So it's just really important to have all these things above board so that uh, it can be done legally and properly. And, of course, the biggest practical reason when it comes to the individual is we don't know you. So this uh, person who's asking the question about cholesterol, we don't know their situation. We don't know if their cholesterol's a 1,000. That would be very unusual, but there are cases of people with cholesterols that high. We don't know if it's 180, but they've had uh, three heart attacks, and the doctor is very concerned. So that's the first part of the answer, and that is simply... We're not just telling people stop their cholesterol medications and go on something natural. But having said that, I've worked with a lot of patients over the years who I felt did not need to go on cholesterol-lowering medication because we could work with them on lifestyle options. And that's what I allude to in the next part of my answer to this individual. So I wrote, there are a number of things that can naturally lower cholesterol. I'll mention a few of them here. But the decision to use them along with or in place of a statin drug is a question that is best answered in concert with a provider who knows your health status and your blood work intimately. Having said that, some of my favorite approaches to improving one's cholesterol profile, and I explain that means either lowering the bad cholesterol, the LDL, or raising the good cholesterol, HDL. And for those of you tuning in, Sonia and I will break that down in a minute but includes these things, regular exercise, weight loss if overweight, more plant-based eating, in other words, substituting animal products with plant products, or maybe more articulately spoken, instead of eating animal products, eating more plant products, and increasing soluble fiber intake. So soluble fiber would be found in things like oat bran, psyllium seed husk, that's the active agent in Metamucil, apple or pear pectin, 
and beans. So we've talked about some of the lifestyle things, dietary things, plant products, exercise, weight loss. These things can help improve the cholesterol profile. But Sonia, whenever we talk about, quote, good and bad cholesterol, I know just from my experience talking with audiences and with patients, a lot of people get confused. How do you like to explain that to your patients? I typically explain it like this. Cholesterol travels in vehicles, so to speak, in our bodies. So the vehicles that the cholesterol travels in is what determines whether it is a, quote, bad cholesterol or a good cholesterol. Bad cholesterol you might compare to a bus, which is picking up cholesterol, taking it to your arteries, and depositing it there. That, of course, is not what we want because we do not want cholesterol buildup, which uh, is essentially plaque building up in your arteries. The good cholesterol you can compare to a garbage truck, which is picking up cholesterol from the arteries and taking it to the liver where it is getting processed and gotten rid of. So we want more of that type of vehicle that's transporting cholesterol in our bodies and less of the other one. The easy way to remember it on the labs is the good cholesterol is HDL. You can remember that as happy cholesterol and the LDL as lousy cholesterol. Okay, I like this analogy and the basic bottom line as Dr. Sonia has explained it is the cholesterol is the same. It's just where it's going. And so if it's in one of those bad carriers like the LDL, then that's going to the arteries, adding to blockages. And if it's in the HDL, the so-called good cholesterol or good carrier, the garbage truck in Sonia's illustration, it's being removed from the arteries. So what we're saying is you can impact these cholesterol levels with lifestyle. Now, we had another question that came through that uh, sometimes interfaces with blood fats. This person, I don't know if they were asking the question about blood fats or not, but they just asked a fairly simple question, and it uh, relates to something that is used to modulate or modify cholesterol levels. So why don't we tackle that one at this point? This person said, Greetings, Dr. David. Can you give advice about this medicine? What do you think if I buy and use it? So uh, what this person is referring to, they sent me a link to a, a product, and it's an omega-3 product. It's uh, something called Omega-3 Natural Vast Clear Drops. Maybe I shouldn't even have mentioned it. And along with what they sent me is this description, not from the questioner, but from someone promoting the product. It says, this is a natural remedy that will cleanse your blood vessels and eliminate the causes of all your diseases. In a few months, your health condition will be much better, so you will feel yourself better than, I'd say, many 40-year-olds. <laughs> well, that might be uh, quite the claim, Sonia, if the person's in their 60s, but for a 20-year-old, I don't know how comforting it would be that their health is going to be better than a 40-year-old. Let me first just break this down. I think most of you are savvy enough to realize that when claims are being made like this will eliminate the causes of all your diseases, you should be immediately suspect, okay? If, 
if uh, something is a quote panacea, it's usually being overstated as far as its benefits. And again, this is a proprietary omega-3 supplement. And I don't recommend proprietary supplements. I don't recommend this brand or that brand. Omega-3 fats, uh, these are fats that are found in well, a variety of sources. Sonia, why don't you tell us a little bit about omega-3 fats just to bring people up to speed? Yeah, so omega-3 fats are very essential for our bodies to have healthy function. And omega-3 fats are only made by plants uh, and are only found in either plant products or in creatures such as fish who have eaten the plant products that contain omega-3 fatty acids. So of course, many people think that fish is a good food because some of them are rich in omega-3 fatty acids. But that brings in a whole nother issue of heavy metals and other contaminants in the fish. So my preference is to get the omega-3 fatty acids firsthand from the plant sources that made it. Some foods that are very high in omega-3s are flax seeds walnuts, chia seeds, and other foods. Yeah, it's a great point. And in fact, it is what I mentioned. Here's my answer that I uh, responded. I said, I would not take anything that makes claims like this. You can get omega-3 fats inexpensively by simply using flax seeds and grinding them fresh. And back to the point about fish. Of course, many of our indigenous listeners, they're fabric of their life may have been tied to fish, especially some of the coastal native peoples. I've spoken to groups up in Alaska, of course, where fish and marine sources were major sources of their diet. So we don't tell people that they can't eat fish. But the point is these sources, like you mentioned, are not the pristine sources that your ancestors generations ago were consuming, at least as far as toxins. So many... Uh, what we call now forever toxins, some of these uh, compounds that can last in the environment for decades, as well as uh, things specifically like the heavy metals that we're very concerned about. So, Sonia, I know we've uh, got to step away here briefly. So we're going to be coming back uh, more with uh, your questions, things that have come through to us, and we're going to be tackling those. A lot of interesting and practical things. We'll be back with more right after these messages. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at AIANL.org. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, AIANL.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong. We are resilient. And we will get through this together. But these are stressful times. And it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. 
Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My wife, Dr. Sonia DeRose, in the studio with me. We're dialoguing together about your questions. Again, the single best place to reach us with questions, this is what we're finding at least most people are using, so we're assuming that's the best way to do it. It's simply to reach out to us through the Timeless Healing Insights website. That is the place where we also have these free 30-day programs, uh, free 30-day lifestyle programs. The one that is always free, 30 Days to Better Health. It's a special uh, program for diabetes and high blood pressure, so you can get that there at timelesshealinginsights.org. A lot of folks uh, going through that free program and then communicating with us there. So a great place to get resources. If you are just listening for the first time, we've had tribal health leaders use those videos. You don't have to have permission. You can use them to complement uh, tribal health activities, programs that you're doing in your setting. You can use them, of course, individually. So, Sonia, you and I were speaking at the break about this topic that's come up. We were speaking about Omega-3 fats, these are these beneficial fats naturally found in plant products, concentrated in some fish, especially cold water fish. And we were talking about some issues, and you felt maybe we left some of our listeners without giving them full information. Yes, I thought it would be helpful if you explained to the listeners a little bit more about what heavy metals are and why are we so concerned about them. So the so-called heavy metals involve some things that we might think in some settings are good. For example, iron. You need iron for uh, adequate hemoglobin, adequate blood, healthy blood. Uh, But too much iron even can be dangerous or damaging. High blood iron levels and higher levels of blood cells, we call it polycythemia. These make the blood less fluid and can cause problems as well. So 
Iron is an interesting one. Excess iron levels have also been associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease because iron is what we call a pro-oxidant. It stimulates reactions in the body that are undesirable as far as aging and health. So, yes, there's some of these heavy metals that we need in proper amounts. Others are generally just plain toxic. You can think of something like arsenic or something like mercury. And the sad thing is that fish are one of the foods that tend to concentrate, especially mercury. If you look at mercury exposure, it is the single major mercury exposure in most all the papers I see. Now, having said that, Sonia, some time ago, I ran across a very interesting article in the medical literature. And I want to just pause on this one a little bit because heavy metal exposures, toxin exposures are not just things that we're exposed to by our diet. We can be exposed to toxins in the air. We can be exposed to toxins, the forms of things that we handle. Some years ago, I saw a patient who had elevated liver function tests. Sonia, before I talk about his scenario, help us understand why a doctor would be concerned. What are these blood tests and why are we concerned about them? Liver function tests are important because if they're elevated, they show that uh, the liver is being irritated or damaged in some way. And so that's what I had with this patient. So we're trying to figure out why his liver function tests are elevated. It turns out that this fellow was a hobbyist. He was involved with the model railroad cars and things, and he was washing the parts to the train in something called methyl ethyl ketone. It's a powerful solvent, and he was just doing it with his bare hands. And that toxin was getting in through his skin and was damaging his liver. So we can have a variety of ways that we're exposed to toxins, whether it's a solvent like the methyl ethyl ketone or MEK, or whether it's heavy metals. Now, this was a really chilling story that I read some years ago in the medical research, and it started with a 15-year-old young man who was hospitalized, and they're trying to figure out what's going on with him. And as they evaluate him, they find out that he's got severe mercury poisoning. The result of it, it was causing mental health problems. It affected his performance in school. He couldn't think clearly. He was having aches. He was irritable. They thought it was all in his head. It was in his head. I mean, his brain was being damaged by the mercury, but they were thinking it was you know, a mental health issue. When he was admitted to the hospital, they found him also to have significant blood pressure elevation, especially the diastolic or lower number. Again, young man, he's 15 years old. His diastolic blood pressure, 106. I mean, typically when I see a young person that's healthy, their diastolic blood pressure is often half that, maybe in the 50s or low 60s. He's at 106. His systolic number was over 140. He's also observed to have a rash. He's sweating. He can't tolerate the cold. He's got a tremor. He can't sleep. He's not wanting to eat. And they do this evaluation, and they find he's got these markedly elevated mercury levels. I mean, they're they're pretty much off the charts. And the researchers then go to find out how was this kid getting all this mercury exposure? Now, this was some pretty good epidemiology work. You know, you've got people, I'm sure, from the public health field that are in there trying to figure out why this kid's getting all this mercury. It wasn't because they were eating a bunch of fish. It was because, and I don't know how they found this out, but they found that the previous tenant, he was living in an apartment, the previous tenant had a large jar of elemental mercury. Mercury is fascinating stuff. I mean, we used to have it in the old thermometers and all. 
I've talked with people who've had mercury around their house. They say, oh, this is just kind of a mesmerizing stuff almost. But it's a liquid metal, basically. Anyway, this person had spilled the mercury, what was what the history was. And they couldn't find this person, couldn't confirm it. But they actually checked the air levels for mercury. And you listening in, you might not have a feel for, you know, micrograms per cubic meters. I mean, what does this measurement mean? But the air mercury should only have 0.5 micrograms per cubic meter or less. So the number to remember is 0.5. Now, Sonia, I know you're looking at the report with me. I was going to say, can you guess how high the levels were? So I won't do that to you, but 50 to 400 micrograms per cubic meter. So we're talking about up to nearly a thousand times the toxic level of mercury in the air. So it turned out, of course, as you'd expect, that there were other people in the home who also were exposed to mercury as a result of this investigation. So the point simply is heavy metals are toxic. However you get exposed to them, be careful about toxic exposures. Diet is one way. Fish, unfortunately, concentrating many toxins, but we can also be exposed to them in the environment, and it is something worth paying attention to. Well, we're going to come back to uh, questions that have actually come through to us, and the next one that we're going to tackle is right here. This person was apparently using the 30 Days to Better Health program that we've mentioned on Timeless Healing Insights because they first make a comment about where they're on the program and then why don't you just come to their question? This person asked, is it good to drink red pear juice to lower blood pressure? Okay, so let's tackle that red pear juice. Here's the interesting thing, Sonia. There's great phytochemicals in all kinds of plant products that can help you with blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes risk. But when it comes to juices, especially fruit juices, where I'm especially concerned because a lot of the patients that I see with high blood pressure and diabetes also have weight to lose. I don't know. What is it like in your experience as you deal with patients with these common conditions? The same thing. The vast majority of people are needing to, wanting to, or trying to lose weight rather than gain weight. And juices, unfortunately, actually tend to worsen the weight problem. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the point that I would emphasize because what happens is what we know from actual research is that the calories you get in the form of juice give you relatively little satisfaction compared to those same calories if you were eating them in a whole food. So let's take the example of red pears. So what do I think of someone using red pears as part of a diet that's going to help with their blood pressure? Great, okay. We recommend eating more plant-based foods. These are the real winners when it comes to better metabolism. But once you put those pears into a juice, think about it this way. How many pears could you eat? Those of you tuning into this radio show, I mean, when I ask this question of people, whether it's a pear or an apple or an orange, you know, I'll hear figures like, well, maybe three or four. But to make a glass of pear juice, I mean, it may take three or four pears, depending on you know how efficient the juice machine more is. More. Maybe more, you're right. So what I would simply say is eat the whole plant foods and what I recommended to this individual is simply this. I said, we like hibiscus tea better than juices. We talk about it in Chapter 12 of our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. 
And then I mentioned to them also, of course, they're going to be getting similar content, not as extensively, but in that free program, 30 Days to Better Health at TimelessHealingInsights.org. The other issue with drinking, several issues actually, with drinking juices instead of eating the whole food is that, one, you're either removing a good portion of the fiber, if not all of it, so you're eliminating a lot of the beneficial aspects of the food, and also you don't tend to chew juices. You just drink them down quickly. So this both increases your total caloric consumption because you don't get the satisfaction of the filling factor of the fiber. And also a lot of the vitamins and nutrients, in fact, the highest concentration of vitamins and minerals and isoflavonoids, all these good plant compounds are found in and just under the skin, which would also be eliminated in most of the juices. Okay, we do have to step away. We're going to be back with more of your questions, things you've sent through to us. I'm Dr. David DeRose, my wife, Dr. Sonia. We'll be back with more right after these messages. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at aianl.org. Or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, Ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov slash meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. 
Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the second half of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose with my wife, Dr. Sonia DeRose. We are taking your questions today. If you're just joining us, single best place to reach out to us, TimelessHealingInsights.org. This is a sister website where we put up a lot of our, our free content. It is the site for our free program called 30 Days to Better Health. Many of you have engaged with that program. Uh, I want to say last time I looked, some fifteen to 20,000 people have at least engaged with some portion of that content. It is a 30-day free program, especially designed for high blood pressure and diabetes. The history of it is, Sonia, you know this well, it was developed especially for indigenous peoples. It was a request from a person very active in tribal health issues to uh, condense some of the material we had put out in our book called 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control in short videos. So that's the, the origin of the program. And a lot of these questions are coming through from people that have engaged with the program. And just by virtue of the next question, I'm assuming this person was also going through the program. So why don't you ask the next question for us? This person says, can I drink hibiscus tea without sugar? And uh, it might seem like a strange question. The reason for the question likely, and the reason I'm assuming it is related to the free 30-day program, in that free program, in going through our blood pressure book, we have an entire chapter in the book. It's chapter 12, where we look at specific natural adjuncts to help lower blood pressure. So the book is about natural therapies for blood pressure. We have a chapter talking about supplements, herb teas, and the one that we especially like is hibiscus tea. So I'm assuming that's why the person asked. The question is, can I drink it without sugar? So, Sonia, you and I have spent a lot of time talking both together and with our patients about sweeteners. What are the concerns? Because there's so much dialogue today about sweeteners. Why are we concerned about sweeteners? Well, there are natural sweeteners and artificial sweeteners. Of course, sugar is a natural sweetener, but it is a very refined product. It uh, tends to cause a lot of problems in the body, including worsening your blood fluidity, which contributes to all kinds of health problems. Artificial sweeteners are not giving you calories, but their effect on the body is detrimental to say the least. More and more research is coming out showing how harmful they can be, especially in regards to even diabetes, perhaps cancer. There's just a lot of issues with artificial sweeteners that are not good. And, of course, the natural sweeteners add calories as well, which are unnecessary. So that's really getting at the essence of what I communicated. And that is just making the, the simple point that we don't recommend using sweeteners in our products. If, if I tell people if they want to use something that's natural and has low calories, although you know some people question its use too, but uh, stevia is something that some people have felt is a safer alternative that's a natural uh, sweet product. But my approach, Sonia, and might be similar in your practice, is I tell people just try to develop a taste for things that aren't so artificially sweet. If you're eating more fruits and vegetables, there's many sweet vegetables and fruits, whether you're talking about carrots or beets or whether you're talking about any of the fruits. They're generally, most of the fruits are sweeter. 
get your satisfaction from sweet things from those foods. When it comes to the herb tea, like the hibiscus tea, although it can have more of a bitter flavor to it, we recommend using it without sugar. And it does have documented blood pressure lowering effects. Let's move on to speak about some of these other questions that have come through. We've had a lot of questions come through about diet. Here's a question on a little bit different lifestyle topic. This person says, running is the best exercise to lower blood pressure, right? Well, that's another one that's quite an interesting question. For some people, running is probably the most dangerous thing they could do. If you're tuning in today and you've got bad arthritis, you know, your knees, your ankles, whatever it might be, hips, this might be counterproductive. So running is a great exercise for people who are healthy and enjoy it and don't have any deleterious consequences from it. One of the rules of thumb I like, uh, Dr. Sonia, and maybe you use the same one with your patients, is if I have a patient, let's say they have arthritis, and they're saying, well, how much exercise can I safely do? My general response is, whatever you do, increase very gradually. And if you're doing too much, if you have bad arthritis, you may have discomfort whatever you do. But I say the best indicator for me of whether you're doing too much is how you feel the next day. If you're getting on an exercise bicycle, you're not putting a lot of stress on your joints. You're swimming. So you're doing things that are reasonable, but the joints hurt even when you're doing that. I say evaluate your joints the next day. If the joints aren't bothering you anymore, you're probably doing good for yourself. And it doesn't seem like you're going the wrong direction. How do you feel about that response, Dr. Sonia? Yes, I think that's good. The other thing to consider, though, is if you've been very sedentary, anything you may do may tend to make you feel a little sore or achy if you've not been using your muscles much at all. But remember that for people with arthritis, as well as everyone else, exercise is actually very important. and movement is actually better than just sitting and not moving at all because that will cause more problems. So physical activity is really important metabolically for blood pressure, for blood sugar, for weight. And so, yes, we encourage people to be doing something. If you go through any of our uh, free programs, we're going to encourage you to gradually increase exercise. And we have uh, counsel there about who needs to be careful, who needs to check with a doctor. One of the things I sometimes tell my patients or tell general audiences, more likely in a public setting or setting where someone's sending me a question, I don't know their health, I say, well, do you need your doctor's permission to walk in the mall or to walk in the department store? So just increase your walking in your everyday activities. Uh, We're not talking about doing something more vigorous. If you've got a question, definitely talk with a healthcare provider, make sure you're not doing something that's damaging yourself. And maybe I should mention this too about increasing activity and especially about metabolic diseases. One of the things that a lot of patients are not aware of is the whole relationship between nerve health and potential joint damage. One of the things that we sometimes see in our patients with diabetes is something called Charcot foot. So we see this in individuals who have neuropathy, they have nerve damage from their diabetes, and they may be actually putting lots of stress on their joints. Maybe they are overdoing it. Maybe the 
person says, well, hey, my feet feel fine because I don't feel anything below my knees because of my diabetes, and they're running, this is a potentially very dangerous situation if you don't have those normal pain responses. And I have seen people, because of overexercise, damage joints because they didn't have that feedback of whether pain was getting worse, whether they were aggravating things. So I would just underscore that point as well. Well, let's go on with another question here. This is apparently also from someone who is engaging with our online content. We've mentioned this several times, assuming that many of you are regular listeners, but let me just pause for a minute and tell you what we're talking about. We have a program called 30 Days to Better Health. It's a free program. It's on our sister website called TimelessHealingInsights.org. If you go to the program 30 Days to Better Health and sign up for it, every day you will get an email for 30 days. And each day you'll get a link to a short video. It's me speaking about practical things. The videos average just about six minutes long. So we're asking you to make a commitment of six minutes a day for 30 days. And I'll challenge you to do certain things. We'll challenge you to improve your activity. We'll challenge you to eat better. We'll challenge you to do things that can help you with stress management. We'll talk about your sleep. Now, this individual here is picking up on something that we talk about in the middle of the program that has to do with meal timing. So, uh, Sonia, why don't you ask this question as it came through uh, one of our listeners or one of our program participants. This patient says, Good morning, Dr. David. I'm eating food only one time a day within a 24-hour period. I'm eating only beans and cabbages. Is that healthy eating only one time in 24 hours interval? Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about this. So in our 30 Days to Better Health program, we talk about meal timing. And many of you may realize that the pendulum has really swung, and I would say in the direction that you and I, Dr. Sonia, have been recommending for many years. And that is this whole idea of grazing, eating multiple meals throughout the day, more and more evidence accumulating that this is really not the best eating style. Most people do best eating two or at most three meals a day, spreading those meals out and having a considerable period of time where we allow what we call the interdigestive phase of digestion to take place. So a lot of people, I was shocked by this. I've, I've mentioned it on air, I think, before. I've actually taught college nutrition classes. And uh, when I was teaching nutrition at the college level, I was shocked by the nutrition textbooks because they spent all this time talking about nutrients and nutrition, digestion, absorption, all important, but they'd never talk about this interdigestive period or they'd give maybe a page to it in a book that's 500 or 1,000 pages long. And why this is so important is there's a period of time that's needed. Uh, it takes a number of hours, probably takes five or six hours uh, based on the research before this kicks in where our body goes into some housekeeping functions to improve the health of the digestive tract, to do some crazy things like duodenal retroperistalsis. Now, that is a mouthful. So you, you as a physician know what that is. So break that down, duodenal retroperistalsis. Just what does that mean? That is a medical term for simply saying that the activity of the duodenum is going backwards so that it's flushing fluids back into the stomach instead of pushing them on through the intestine the other direction as it normally would be. This is very important for the 
health of your stomach because it puts alkaline fluids into the stomach to give it a break from the acid, for instance, from the acidic contents of the stomach. And it just is a general housekeeping mechanism that helps to keep the gut healthy. Sonia, this is just really important stuff. And we want to really expand this. So we're going to cover some more of it in the next segment. We've got some other stuff to cover too. But before we step away, I know we've been talking a lot about some of the different programs, the different options that we have. And we probably should take just a few minutes or maybe 45 seconds. I'm looking at the clock here to just mention a couple of things for those who are tuning in. So we have free programs. They're free 30-day lifestyle programs that are on the current TimelessHealingInsights.org page. One of them has been rolled out as a free program just on a trial basis, and uh, that's moving to a fee-based program. But we've got one that is designed to be always free. It's uh, the one you've heard me mention in connection with developing it for Native American concerns. That was the original impetus for it. But that program is called 30 Days to Better Health, and you can access it at TimelessHealingInsights.org. So TimelessHealingInsights.org. Well, we're going to step away right now. We're going to come back with more on meal timing and another really important topic that you don't want to miss. I'm Dr. DeRose. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our final segment of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Dr. David DeRose with my wife, Dr. Sonia DeRose. I'm an internal medicine specialist by training. Sonia's training is in family practice. I also have board certifications in preventive medicine. We're speaking to you about your questions, things that have come to us, especially through the TimelessHealingInsights.org website. Sonia, we're talking about meal timing. Why don't you read the question one more time that's kind of gotten us on this uh, trajectory, and then we'll go back to the answer. Okay. This person said, repeating the question, Good morning, Dr. David. I'm eating food only one time a day within a 24-hour period. I'm eating only beans and cabbages. Is that healthy eating only one time in 24 hours interval? Okay, so let's go back to the meal timing. So it is a good thing to have frequent spaces for this interdigestive phase or something called the migrating motor complex that's uh, programmed into our intestinal system that's involved with restoring the health of the digestive tract. And I probably don't need to mention to you as my listeners that we've got an epidemic of digestive illnesses, whether it's reflux esophagitis, sometimes called GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, the cause of heartburn, whether it's gastritis, you know, just stomach irritation. I was dealing with a young person not long ago taking antacids every day. This is not uncommon. And one of the things that can help us with this digestive health is spreading out our meals. Now, the question is, how healthy is it just to eat one meal a day? Honestly, that's not something I recommend long-term. If someone's going on a short-term fast, especially if they are not on any medications and don't have other digestive issues, because here's the two-edged sword. Food buffers acid. So there's certain people, if you've got certain gastrointestinal problems, if you don't eat for a long period of time, that actually can make things worse as well. So there's this importance of this inner digestive phase, but uh, for some individuals, they may have um, really bad gastritis. That's a, an irritation of the stomach lining. And going for 24 hours without eating, it may, it may be too long a time if, if they're not on some kind of medication or some kind of regimen. So that's the first thing I'd mention. The other thing I'd say is definitely concerns about blood pressure medications, diabetes medications, diabetes in particular, because many of, especially the older diabetes medicines, your insulins, some of the oral pills, they can lower a normal sugar. And so if you're not eating for 24 hours, your sugar could get dangerously low, especially if you're taking a medication. So those would be some of my big concerns. So generally we're saying, Two meals a day, probably optimal for most people, three at most. Sonia, I know you've got some things, too, that you often talk with your patients about when it comes to meal timing. Yes, a couple of things that I feel are very important. One is to try to keep your meals on as regular a schedule as possible, because our bodies are creatures of habit, and if we eat on a regular schedule at the same time every day, your body actually is preparing for that meal before you even eat it. Your stomach is preparing the digestive juices, the acids, uh, getting ready for that meal. 
So if you don't eat at that time, then there's all this acid in your stomach with no food there to digest, which can be problematic. The other thing with meal timing is that for people especially who are trying to lose weight or maintain their weight, the earlier in the day that you eat your last meal, the better as far as weight control. In the morning, our bodies are geared hormonally to burn the calories we eat as energy, whereas in the afternoon and evening, it's geared hormonally to store those same calories as fat. So it's much better if you can eat your main meal or main meals earlier in the day, and if you eat supper at all, have it very light and several hours before bed. Because if you go to bed with a full stomach, that introduces a whole host of other problems. Besides interfering with your sleep, it also decreases uh, production of growth hormone, which is not just to grow, but also a reparative hormone that restores the wear and tear of the day on your body. And if your blood sugar is rising when you go to bed, which it will be if you've just eaten a big meal not long before, that suppresses the production of that. So uh, let's go to the last uh, part of the question that's really involved in there, and that had to do with these foods, a person just eating cabbage and beans. So, I mean, two great foods. We recommend eating beans regularly. In fact, if you go through our 30-day program, we have one day early in the program where we say be big on beans, eat more beans because beans, because of their soluble fiber, they help to stabilize blood sugar. They have cholesterol-lowering properties. So they're really very important foods. And sometimes people that don't tolerate some of the larger beans may tolerate some of the smaller ones, like lentils, for example. So find some kind of bean that you can eat. And uh, generally, these are going to be healthy things to include in the diet. Cabbage is another nutritional powerhouse in the cruciferous vegetable family. It includes other things like broccoli, cauliflower, kale, all in this family, Brussels sprouts. They're loaded with anti-cancer compounds, very powerful phytochemicals that have many benefits. But having said that, yeah, if someone does this for a week or something, no big deal. But you want more variety in your diet than just cabbage and beans going forward very long term. Well, Sonia, you have a comment about that too? Well, one other thing I wanted to add as far as the meal timing. If you're eating shortly before going to bed, that also is a risk factor for heartburn, for causing reflux because you're lying down and gravity is no longer helping to keep the food in your stomach. So this is a, definitely a contributor to gastroesophageal reflux disease as well. Okay, we've got uh, one last question I think we can squeeze in uh, to today's program. Sonia, what have you got there? Is the antibiotic Cipro dangerous? Uh, this is an interesting question. So I had a patient not long ago. This class of medications includes things like Cipro and Levaquin. We call them fluoroquinolones. These were the miracle drugs of yesteryear. And I say yesteryear, I can remember probably 20 years ago, a businessman, international businessman. I heard him telling a group of people, wherever I go, I carry Cipro with me. You know, it gets rid of everything. Cipro, Levaquin, they're very powerful antibiotics. They do kill, cover a lot of germs. But we've learned that these medications can also have serious side effects. Now, I'm saying this because if you're listening to this show and you've read 
a product insert about antibiotics, you read all these horror stories, you would never take anything. At least most people wouldn't if you read, you know, these terrible side effects. But one of the things that I kind of judge how common these things are is just with my clinical experience. I sometimes caution patients on side effects of drugs that I've never seen before. They might be what we call a black box warning. That's the most serious warning of potential side effects. And I'll tell people, you know, there's this black box warning. It can cause X, Y, or Z. And I've never seen it. And I've been practicing for many years. But when it comes to these fluoroquinolones, we've seen the complications. So what kind of complications have we seen? I mean, I'll give you several examples. You could too, Sonia. What kind of things come to your mind with these uh, antibiotics? Well, one of the uh, big concerns is its possible effect on your tendons and ligaments. I have personally known people who took a course of Cipro and ended up in a wheelchair for months because their ligaments and tendons were just temporarily destroyed, basically. I mean, they couldn't, they could not walk. Thankfully, they were able to recover from that, but that's not always the case, apparently. Cipro and Levaquin also have neurologic side effects. So we've seen uh, people with a psychosis, you know, going crazy on the medications. They can have nerve damage. So does that mean you should never use them? Well, I'll just give you a practical example, Sonia. I had a patient not all that long ago who had a severe urinary infection. We did what we call a culture insensitivity. We looked at what things would kill this germ. We actually only had two choices. We either had to admit the patient into the hospital, give him powerful intravenous antibiotics. The only oral medication that would kill this germ was in that class. It was like a Cipro or a Levaquin. So we're not saying that it's inappropriate to prescribe these drugs, but if you have any question, ask your doctor if there's any other options. Why are you prescribing this? Is it the only option? Because uh, these are not first-line antibiotics. They're definitely not things that you should be carrying in your suitcase and take if you start having symptoms of some kind of an illness. They can be potentially quite dangerous. Well, Sonia, we covered quite a few things in today's show. Thank you so much for, for joining me today and uh, engaging in the dialogue as well as asking the questions. Glad I could be here with you. So we're uh, winding down. I just want to remind you, we're doing these shows uh, periodically as we get questions coming through. and We have enough to do a show and trying to make sure we're talking to issues that are of concern to you. Remember, our free resources available at our sister site, TimelessHealingInsights.org. That's also the single best place to send your questions. So simply TimelessHealingInsights, plural, dot O-R-G, and you can engage with our content as well as ask questions. Well, for all of us, just want to thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.